everyone and welcome to Wise Brussels Voices and our series with women leaders. I'm Ilana Beitel, I'm a member of Wise Brussels, that's Women in International Security, and I'm your host for this conversation with women who are leading and shaping the world in many ways and fields. In our last episode, we explored the world of sanctions with economists, so it seems fitting to devote this episode to some of the main targets of sanctions business and trade, and to gain the perspective of diplomats who actually help negotiate all the above, sanctions, business and trade. We tend to think that business and trade are a matter of finding customers, agreeing prices and shipping goods or services. All very true at the individual level, but most of these exchanges are actually framed by much wider agreements on everything from market access to tariffs to acceptability of goods. The European Union is a trading bloc, so within it, all trade is open. But those wishing to trade with it, and for Europeans trading outside it, the situation is often more complex. The same goes for the United States or China, or indeed all large economies, including Canada. And that is very relevant because we have with us today Dr Eilish Campbell, Ambassador of Canada to the European Union and formerly Chief Trade Commissioner of Canada an assistant deputy minister leading Global Affairs Canada team of trade commissioners across six Canadian offices and over 150 locations worldwide. With her is Ambassador Nina Vashkunlati, Under Secretary of State for External Economic Relations at the Ministry for Foreign Affairs of Finland and formerly Ambassador to India and Turkey. We're delighted to have two women so eminently qualified to discuss matters of business, trade and indeed sanctions. Welcome, ladies. It's absolutely lovely to see you both. As ever, we would love to start with um, both of you telling us a little bit about your careers and how you come to be where you are today. Nina. Thank you. Um, thank you, Ilana. Well, I have been in the Finnish Foreign Service almost for four decades, which is a, a quite a lifetime. Every time I say it aloud, I feel a bit scared and surprised myself how quickly time went. But anyway, so I started in mid-1980s directly from the university. At the time I graduated, I had a couple of choices what to do, but I thought I would try with the foreign ministry. And and out of these 40 years, I've spent, I would say, roughly 20, 25 years abroad, um, serving um, as an ambassador in Turkey, India, Bangladesh. I've spent some time in in, in Russia, in in Moscow, also in Bosnia after after the war. 11 years in Brussels on three different occasions, and the first uh, so my first stint in Brussels was before the Finland's access into the European communities at the time. And then I was back there for the first and second Finnish presidencies of the, of the European uh, Council. And I got back to Helsinki uh, four years ago uh, to take back my current portfolio, which I'm going to uh, hand over to my successor in a couple of months and move to Vienna for the next uh, couple of years. And, uh, I haven't enjoyed this. This has been good fun. I tried to get away a couple of times you know, to do something else, but I never really, let's say twice I was left as number two to something I wanted to do. And I thought, okay, Finnish foreign ministry is my fate, so I will stick to it. And I have not regretted it. It has been uh, interesting, challenging and, and, and good fun as well. Well, that's very, very good to hear and very encouraging for especially young women. And I know several currently who are applying for various and starting out in various uh, foreign ministries. Eilish, how did you come about to have your career, which is also very distinguished? 
Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me, and it's uh, it's wonderful to be on your podcast. I've I've become a huge fan of yours, listening to the different episodes as I take my walks. So, it's a it's a real honor to join you, and you know I I think my message um, to your listeners is really you know some of us uh, while incredibly honored to take our positions didn't have maybe as clear a plan as Nina described. I, I certainly have pivoted several times. I kind of think of my life as a book. And, you know, hopefully each chapter has a decent ending and leads on to the next thing. Uh, I've been an academic. Uh, I think first and foremost, that's what I was planning on doing, uh, finishing my PhD at Oxford and, and was planning on teaching. And then an opportunity came uh, a little bit like if you want to fly uh, F-35s, you've got to go into the military. If you want to be a trade negotiator for your country, you've got to work in government. So as an economist and a, a political scientist, uh, very much rooted in the English uh, political economy uh, tradition. When I had the chance to go and, and apprentice as a trade negotiator uh, in our WTO, our World Trade Organization team, I, I jumped at the chance. And I thought that would make me a better academic. And here I am 20 years later. Uh, I've taken time out from government. I've served in the private sector uh, and enjoyed that immensely. I think it's important to refresh uh, all of our thinking and break ourselves out of our thought bubbles and our assumption bubbles. Uh, and in my case, uh, came back into government in 2014, served in our treasury department, and I, again, just had an opportunity uh, to apply for uh, a role back in the trade department where I had started. And uh, one thing led to another. And in 2020, in the middle of the pandemic, Prime Minister Trudeau and uh, the then Minister uh, of uh, Foreign Affairs, uh, Francois-Philippe Champagne, asked me to serve as our ambassador to the European Union. And I had been here before as an intern for one year when the euro was being created. So talk about full circle. <laughs> well, that is a, a, a real full circle. Just as a matter of interest, what was your PhD in? Labor market economics. And, and should trade, regional trade agreements have more labor elements and even common minimum wages? You're one of those very, very rare exceptions in which somebody's absolutely qualified to do the job in which they're at, I suppose, from that point of view. But let me go back before we go on to trade and business. I think a lot of people are very curious in the same way as they don't know what necessarily economists do. What do diplomats do? Well, this is a question I, I always struggle. If I struggle to answer it, not, not really. A diplomat works for his or her country, representing, negotiating, also finding about the country organization where you work, where, where, you, where, where you happen to be working, go behind the facts, try to figure out what, what is going on, provide information for your own political decision makers to make sound decisions. Diplomat participates in negotiations, you know, uh, be it in the union where I spent, as I said, 11 years of my life, I, I learned, learned a lot about uh, consensus-seeking negotiations, trying to uh, figure out what would be best for, for, for European Union, what would be best for, for the member states, all of us. And in, in those, um, I would say diplomacy is all of, is, is very much about negotiating as, as, as well, defending your points of views, uh, but also uh, finding a way forward with, with the ones you, you are dealing with. And um, 
in today's world, diplomacy is also very much economic diplomacy, looking for uh, opportunities for your for the business life of the country. You are you are representing, uh, and this is something I have been now doing really for the last four years. And to give you a very practical example, I have been leading uh, many many sort of business delegations to to various countries. And last week it was about uh, uh, wood construction in in Czechia. Two weeks ago it was ten days in China. You know, discussing uh, but that was not so much about let's say trade delegation, but was discussing about the uh, let's say the investment climate predictability and what China is all about at the moment. Uh, a month ago, I was in uh, where was I? Uh, I was in Mexico once again with a sort of a strong business delegation. So this is what I do at the moment. So diplomacy can be a lot, and of course, I can see that diplomacy has changed to a certain extent during my 40 years in the service as well. But let's say the, the foundations are still the same, representing doing the best for your country or for the organization that you are working for. And before we go to Eilish, do you think a lot of it has changed also because of media, both social and just, you know, what they used to call the CNN effect and the ability of at least politicians and various people to just communicate directly and therefore there's less, apparently less of a need for diplomats? I think it's very important that, uh, I mean, the more there's information, the better there is. At the same time, you know, there's so much, would I call them, you know, false facts or superfluous information going around. So therefore, it's even more important to go behind the facts or so-called facts or go behind the news, go behind the information flow and to see what's going on. But the more my ministers and politicians discussion, discuss with others, the better it is. I mean, it's very important to have personal relationships and uh, on friendships and, and whatever, but I don't think that would make me superfluous. No, it doesn't. I remember we had that discussion in Finland some 20, 10, 15 years ago. We know uh, with the information flow sort of a magnif sort of a multiplying compared to what it was a long time ago. But very soon people realized that the more that's information, the more you need facts. And therefore you have those who are well versed in the country where they are serving. So they somehow get behind the news. That is important. Good. Elish, how do you see it? What is the job of a diplomat and how do you feel it's been changing over the years you've been in the business? Yeah, I think Nina did a great job with her overview. I, I just amplify three points. I think first and foremost, you are a representative of your country. And in that respect, it's very important, although you are abroad, to be very grounded in the interests and natural factor endowments, that means, you know, the, the actual capabilities and the ambitions of your country. And so very important uh, to keep touching base and really ensure that you understand how your own country is changing and adapting while abroad. And so for me, uh, of course, serving a government and taking direction uh, from ministers uh, is the nature of, of a representation uh, in our democracies, reaching out to parliamentarians. And for me, uh, constant conversations with Canadians, stakeholders, business representatives, academics, uh, people who are both traveling through Europe and making a point of really doing a lot of outreach when I go home uh, is incredibly important to continue to build on. You know, I think Nina really emphasized it well. I mean, you are a representative and have to represent the interests and values uh, of your country. And then, you know, secondly, 
Diplomacy is the art of relationships. You can only be doing diplomacy if you're talking, um, although it sends a very strong signal when, for example, you cancel a trade round, you know, you bring an ambassador in uh, for uh, a specific demarche uh, or in extreme cases in our line of work, uh, if you expel people. So, you know, there, there are many different ways of conducting that relationship. Some of them, uh, you know, in my case, I'm in a friendly nation. I, I just want to give a special kind of recognition uh, for those uh, ambassadors serving in hostile countries, uh, countries that are in war. Uh, ambassador, in our case, Larissa Galadza, is serving in Kiev. Um, there are, you know, our teams uh, around the world in difficult, challenging circumstances from Haiti to Sudan. That these, that's, a, that's a whole other context, and so I commend your conversations with a whole range of people. And I'd say finally, you know, it is uh, the art of being ready to change your mind and pivot. So uh, that constant ability to check your facts back home, uh, Nina said it really well when she talked about having those relationships and the intelligence to go behind the headlines and understand uh, the, the dynamics that are at play in order to, again, better express the interests and values of your country in a very complex environment. Well, thank you. I think that's very, the two of you are giving a very comprehensive picture of what it is to be a diplomat. And as we all of us know, my background is both in academia and the UN, but um, you have to be friendly with whoever it is that you are. But I think the representative part is, is terribly important too, that the fact that you're friendly with locals doesn't mean that you don't forget your job in one way or another, which is to represent the organization, in my case, the UN, or the country from which you are coming, in your cases, which allows us to pivot to um, your original calling, which is now such a central part of it, Eilish, which is, what does a trade negotiator do? Mm, yeah, well, a trade negotiator, I think, has uh, a, a fascinating operating environment, and it really is to create the rails on which increased business investment and innovation can happen. And that also happens at the same time as protecting the environment and protecting, uh, for example, worker and labor rights. And it, hopefully, in our case, also engaging with our partner countries so that we can improve uh, biodiversity, environmental outcomes, uh, and climate action for both partners. So in my experience over the last 20 years, um, and I'd love to hear Nina's comments on this as well, I started off as a young economist with mentors who said, it doesn't matter how that automobile was made, what we care about is the final product and we deal with tariffs. And things like pro product and processing measures, as they were called back in the day, you know, how the car was made, uh, the, for example, emissions embedded in the production process. There's some core ILO labor standards that mattered. That, that was a, the original area of my work. How do you bring in uh, labor standard and a minimum, if not obviously, you know, an ever increasing floor of outcomes for workers while having open markets. And I was told all those things don't matter. You know, we're, we're really focused on trade and kind of actions at the border. So um, of course, I, I didn't believe that and, you know, was kind of always working on, on various side projects and conversations and flanking policies. That's, I think, one of the phrases we used to say, well, we'll, we'll put, you know, environment on the side or we'll have, you know, a, a, an element of, a, of another agreement over here. We, of course, have brought trade and labor into the core of our 
uh, bilateral and regional agreements. Uh, that includes the uh, North American Free Trade Agreement, now called uh, CUSMA, the Canada-US-Mexico Agreement for us, uh, and of course, uh, CETA, our economic partnership with the EU, and, and a whole range of other regional and bilateral instruments that we have. And it's uh, it's been a fascinating journey. It's not over. And uh, in fact, I, I really think it's exciting with new digital tools that enable us to better understand and uh, traceability uh, and also you know understand the entire life cycle of a product. We're, we're really getting into areas in which technology can help us better bring some of these objectives in policy together. So it's, a, it's an exciting time, in, a difficult but exciting time in trade policy. Nina, when you say that you lead a, um, a group of business leaders or business interests, how does that actually play out on the ground? You all fly somewhere and? Oops. Uh, before we fly to the crowd, a lot of work has been invested in the, in, in, in the mission. There has been uh, maybe you're flying to the ground can be a result of two years of work. You know, the, the, it has, the, the, the business has decided to expand to abroad. It has sort of a look of, it has a look at the, at the markets. Uh, maybe it has received some, uh, you know, uh, financing and, and help from the government to, to do that. Uh, and uh, it, finally, uh, there, there is a process that they sort of want a, maybe a launch and, and in, in investment. We are there then to sort of celebrate that thing or maybe the, the companies in the face that they're sort of looking for what we call a door opening on, on a higher level to be able to, uh, to, to present the ideas. Maybe we can help them a little bit with, uh, with sort of a smoothening the, the way in the regulatory framework, you know, trying to explain what, what is going on. And, uh, or maybe there's a bit of issues we, we need to discuss with a, with, with a higher level you know, let's say uh, unjustified barriers to trade or market entry or, or whatever. I mean, there are so many different aspects when, when you have a when you, when you have a trade mission, when you lead a trade mission. I would I, I would say there is never a similar mission. I mean, it depends very much, you know, as I said early on, you know, whether it's company on exploratory round, whether it's about to launch something, whether it needs sort of a high level door opening or whether it's all about fact finding. So different stages, different ways. And of course, depending on the country, in, in some countries, let's say the, uh, the help of the, the government or the diplomacy is less needed than in some other countries. It depends, the operating uh, environments are, are, are different. I would say that uh, what uh, I, I, I mean, without naming any countries, but let's say, as I said, the environments differ quite a, quite, quite a lot. Yeah, and I think just to build on what Nina was saying, you know, it's a real team sport, right? There's so much preparation, first of all, with your business. Trade policy is not abstract in the sense that you really are in constant conversation with businesses of all sizes, small businesses, businesses creating new businesses. You know, I was just meeting with an artificial intelligence firm this morning uh, that's working on, you know, how do you implement, for example, various reporting requirements in a world where AI governance is proliferating? This is, these are cutting edge, really new types of businesses, business entities, and of course, our largest companies. And in Canada's case, that includes, uh, you know, everything from energy and, and uh, autos to mining, and it's global. So you're working with those businesses who, you know, come with uh, both interests, market opening, as Nina was saying, and sometimes you're just in the world of market preservation. Um, but then this team, and uh, it's really incredible uh, to see when you are doing these negotiations, 
the expertise, right, that's brought to bear uh, everything from uh, services to technical barriers. And, you know, I, I, I think I can safely share, certainly when you're doing a negotiation with the United States, that's a, a very complex uh, set of rules, but you layer on things like export controls and sanctions and FDI reviews. And so you know that at any point in time, the lead negotiator knows these other topics can come up. So it, it's a real team sport. And it's, uh, I think Nina said it, you know, it's a lot of preparation. And uh, then it's a lot of also to anticipating, right? What, the, what does the other side want? Uh, how ready are you for that? And I think Finland, like Canada, you know, our brand is really being super credible. You know, when we say something, the other side knows it's factual, they can check it, uh, we're, we're, we're straightforward, um, and we're also very prepared. And uh, it's fascinating to see kind of how other nations have their own uh, métier or specializations. Uh, certainly, I was always interested, uh, for example, Sweden and Finland have, um, you know, we have just a lot of uh, synergies uh, across many sectors. So it's also interesting when you're negotiating with the EU to find like-minded member states, because the EU is a complicated uh, hydra, if I, could, uh, if I could be so bold, but it's also uh, a fantastic partner for us, but a, a complicated place. So we're always looking for both, you know, understanding member state interests and then the EU level. And what is the difference just on that very specific one, and this is true to both of you, between working and negotiating for the sake of argument and trading with the EU, you as an external state, and Nina, maybe what's it like negotiating with states outside of the EU, because within trade is trade is trade? Uh, well, well, well as, as you know, the uh, trade belongs to the uh, institution's competence. So uh, it's the European, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a commission that negotiates trade agreements on our behalf with the, with the mandate that is given by the council, by, by the member states. And of course, we all have a say in what the mandate should include and should not include. And then the commission negotiates and comes back to us from time to time to you know, check where we are. And of course, you know, when the member states give the, uh, you know, give the mandate, then we have the parliamentarians and ministers back at home who want to have they say what should be in, in the mandate. So it, it is a long and complicated process once again to have the mandate ready and then the commission to negotiate the mandate. And then when we negotiate, when we sort of prepare the mandate, as Elish was saying, I mean, there are member states who are sort of, let's say, more similar minded or more like minded to certain issues than, than others. You know, it depends a bit uh, what, what, is, what, what is at stake. But all in all, it's extremely important to have free trade agreements or association agreements or investment protection, protection agreements in, in place because they then then they sort of uh, pave the avenue for for, for 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 trading and they pave the avenue of sort of economic and and, and welfare being, being being increased and, and on top of that then we have when we do trade promotion that is a different issue because trade promotion is something every member state does on, on its own Thanks, Nina. I think that's a very um, comprehensive way. What does it look from the other side, though, Eilish, if you're trying to deal with, sell to the EU? Yeah, I think, you know, first and foremost, uh, when it comes to selling, that's over to business. And that's our job to enable them. And, uh, you know, in our capitalist social market democracies, uh, it's really important. There, There is a line, of course, between government and business. So there's, there's excellent support 
um, and there's the, the trade rules, and we want to always be involved with troubleshooting, particularly uh, when we're dealing uh, with partners that are non-market economies, where governments are very much leaning in, subsidizing, um, and in fact even owning some of their, uh, if not, you know, the vast majority of their exporting businesses. So I think Nina was right. Like, it really does depend which market you're dealing with. But in my world, it's our job to open the door and keep uh, the rules fresh, updated. Uh, we, we say trade agreements can be living, should be living agreements. They need to adapt to circumstances. And sometimes that also means finding out that, that partners are not uh, following rules. And, and those are always difficult uh, discussions. For example, when you have to put a countervailing duty, a, a measure on top of uh, a country who may be um, dumping or subsidizing. So the interesting part for us about um, the partnership we, that we have with the European Union, because that's my focus now, of course, being here in Brussels, is uh, we're not a member state. Uh, we're not a member of, of the European Union. We don't have a, a common uh, for example, customs union, we have very different arrangements with different parts of the world than the EU does. Um, lots of times there are great synergies. I think the biggest challenge for us right now is we have uh, an agreement that is fully enforced. 99% of our Canada-EU partnership, uh, our CETA, uh, is in force. Uh, the EU uh, and Canada, when we were negotiating our trade deal, did take certain aspects uh, of uh, the agreement into what are shared competencies with the member states. So that means that all 27 member states have to ratify um, our agreement. Uh, we're having you know, good, solid success with that. Uh, we have 15 member states. Germany and the Netherlands were the latest to ratify. Uh, there are more to go. And that's, uh, you know, a process that each member state should take their time on. But it looks complicated from the outside, is the long and the short of it. So I, I kind of come back to a, a theme here. This is a team sport. Nothing can be done, you know, just by one person. Uh, so leadership, uh, really important, opens doors. Uh, but as I say, uh, how things look uh, from the inside is uh, it's constant discussion and economic security is uh, a whole new overlay to the work that we're doing now. And we're seeing agreements and, and discussions about EU legislation that uh, could, in theory, erode market access unless third, part, third country partners like Canada um, you know, and other great trading partners for the EU are making the EU institutions, the Parliament, the Council, of course, and the Commission aware of our concerns so we can uh, have, have a discussion and, and, and figure out how we can keep this, the, the core resilience of our agreement, which did so well during COVID. I mean, I hope you don't mind me taking a little sidebar here, but if someone had told me there's going to be a pandemic, there's going to be uh, supply chains breaking all over the world, there's going to be no travel uh, for, for a year, and then layered on top of that, when you do get out of the pandemic, there will be war on the continent of Europe, a significant war. Uh, I would have said, wow, guys, that's, a, that's quite a stress test. Like, you know, could, could do, do we have to do such an extreme modeling uh, foresight exercise? Well, like that's the reality we've been dealing with for the last few years. And I have to say nothing um, could have tested our relationship uh, more than what we've uh, managed to come through in the last uh, 24 months. It's been an incredible amount of work. If I can react what you said about this economic, economic security and, and partnership that is extremely important. And for, and for instance, when we, when, we, when we think of the CETA, and you said 15 or so member states have already 
already ratified and 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 then more to come that would be 27 in the end and these ratification can be a complicated process i mean uh, as we we both both know because it has to go through the national parliaments and then because negotiating agreement can already take a long time but then circumstances can to a certain extent change you mentioned COVID yourself I and mean, whatever repercussions it had all on all of us and that can sort of then make politicians to think hey what has been now negotiated can we really agree on what there is. But for Finland, we always say that's very important that uh, when an agreement, political agreement has been reached among the, in, in the Council, and that we then sort of get it ratified as soon as possible, because it's a credibility of the European Union as a whole, that we get these uh, agreements up and running. When we live in this world that is getting more unpredictable, more challenging all the time, we need to have our friends. And the thing is, you can, you can sort of build up your own resilience but without being protectionist. I mean, that is the bottom line, at least for us in Finland. <laughs> well, I think that's a very important bottom line for many states, uh, at least in the EU and um, in many other parts of the world, though I suspect many of them think the EU is becoming protectionist, but then so is the US, and so have a, a variety of countries in danger of becoming protectionist. Um, moving on, because we don't have much time, how has the war in Ukraine affected business for you two? I mean, um, it affects, it's so core to business, to trade. Um, sanctions have come in, but also there's the energy crisis that has affected trade. There's um, new standoffs that have happened with China. Um, how is that affecting what you can and want to do? And how do sanctions play out in real terms when it comes to um, business and trade, Nina? Well, uh, sanctions do play out and it has, and the Russian illegal aggression in Ukraine has had its severe consequences. I mean, we talk about Ukraine itself, we talk about the democracy, and we talk about the fact that, you know, a neighbor attacks its, its neighboring country and, you know, preaches their UN charter international law. And, and now going to the, to the trade, yeah, due, due to the illegal aggression, there are sanctions due to the sanctions, you know, 85% of Finnish businesses have left Russia. I mean, uh, and uh, before the war, there were Finnish investments around in, in the magnitude around 14, 15 billion euros. That's quite a lot of money. Our trade was around 6%. Uh, was with Russia, now it's well below, well below three at the moment. So it has had an impact on, on the Finnish companies. And, uh, but um, that's a consequence they were ready to, to take, uh, also to pay for it, for the reasons I mentioned early on. Confidence in the Russian market has been lost for unforeseeable time to come. And, uh, and these companies are now looking for markets and opportunities uh, elsewhere. And there, you know, uh, we, can, we can assist that from the government business uh, promotion point of view. As, as, as well. Ukraine, yes, Ukraine was our training partner as well, uh, but to, to, to a much lesser uh, degree or extent than, than Russia. But now, of course, uh, what we are doing, like all of us, you know, uh, assisting Ukraine, you know, humanitarian aid, financial and defense aid, you know, the Finnish package is around 1 billion euros altogether at the moment. And then, of course, getting ready for the reconstruction of the country, the certain, certain things can be can be done already now, and then later on, later on uh, on, on on more, and of course then uh, the uh, Russian aggression in Ukraine it had its consequences on the on the energy, as as, as you know for energy prices. If I want to talk with the Finnish point of view, 
we were, should I say, we were prepared because we have always had a very diversified energy palette. So we were not dependent on Russian oil or on Russian gas. So we felt the price hike, but otherwise I would say that we have sorted it out pretty well. Yeah, what a, what an incredible adaptation, Nina. What an incredible response to this uh, illegal, barbaric situation that we find ourselves in. What uh, has been really devastating is, of course, the, the global consequences war and specifically food security. I mean, Ukraine is a real breadbasket um, and uh, the, the farming community there is incredible. So we know that Ukraine, particularly uh, in grains, obviously wheat, sunflower, sunflower oils, derivatives, um, is a huge percentage, sometimes the majority imports that were previously reaching markets, uh, for example, in Egypt or Pakistan. And so this is having devastating consequences on food insecurity. And I think we have to squarely put that onus on Russia. And uh, we have to, in the meantime, try and adapt. We have to keep farmers inside of Ukraine continuing to, uh, to the extent that they can uh, keep their equipment and farms operational. We will have a massive demining effort. Canada is very committed Ooh. right now. Uh, and in parallel to the uh, new EU training mission uh, for uh, the Ukraine military, Canada will, will continue to partner and work uh, on demining. It's going to be a massive uh, piece of work to return uh, land back to its uh, healthy, productive um, capacity. So I, I think maybe the, the last thing I'll say is just that the, the efforts that have gone on uh, by the EU as the, the closest geographic uh, neighbor, of course, to Ukraine are, is absolutely incredible. We will continue to support those efforts. Just the, the incredible way the EU has used all of its tools to just support on logistics, electricity grids, humanitarian support, macro financial assistance. It's, it's been fantastic to partner. And I, it's certainly, again, like I was talking about out of the pandemic, um, we've learned to use institutions and our partnerships in new ways. Um, and we've learned to use uh, business partnerships and diaspora relationships uh, in new ways. I couldn't agree with you more. I think there's sometimes a misrepresentation or at least a misunderstanding of the extent to which the EU has been involved and is donating and giving and doing that uh, because it is not particularly good at um, explaining just the sheer numbers and capabilities that it has. But coming back to Canada and sanctions, how have sanctions affected Canadian business and Canadian trade? Well, I'm going to say three quick things. The first is, of course, we are energy independent. And so just the incredible amount of work that's gone on uh, here in the EU on finding alternative sources of energy, that that's uh, just another incredible piece of work. And of course, Canada very interested in uh, renewables, hydrogen, uh, and our work on nuclear. We are uh, a very energy diverse nation. Uh, we've been exporting more LNG globally. Our largest uh, exporting uh, facilities are of course, North South down to the uh, US and on our Pacific coast to Asian partners. And uh, increasing production overall in this short term in order to bring prices down, but uh, to, to create stability in a market that's been very unstable has been um, kind of the first piece, but on on sanctions as well, we went very quickly. Uh, we coordinated, we, you know, coordination and alignment. It's not it kind of referring yeah. doing exactly what the EU and G7 are doing because, of course, Canada was able to move much faster um, on things like, uh, you know, a, a total ban on oil, maritime, uh, maritime sanctions, and uh, I I would say just generally in terms of exposure, dual use technology. 
where we want to degrade Russia's ability uh, to support its war efforts has been uh, particularly essential and that's needed cooperation with partners, particularly, uh, for example, in, in technology-based businesses and civil aviation. Uh, the third and, and last point is that Canada has gone out uh, in front with a very uh, important piece of legislation that would allow us not only to uh, freeze Russian assets, but also seize them and use them for Ukraine reconstruction. And um, some of the, that work is ongoing and we'll have some of our uh, you know, first test cases of that new legislation. Uh, we think it's uh, very important uh, to continue to coordinate uh, also on uh, third country circumvention. Uh, and that's, that's particularly an area of focus for, for our uh, cooperation with the EU. And have Canadian businesses also left Russia? Absolutely. Can I just take up this? Uh, I'm glad I let you mention the circumvention, circumvention of sanctions, because that is, uh, well, first of all, I mean, there's the 10, 11th package of the sanctions is being under preparation by, by, the, by the Council at the moment. So that's not only the implementation, but now, you know, preventing the circumvention of sanctions. And that is now really becoming a very serious issue. And uh, as a matter of fact, this very morning I had a conversation with an ambassador from a Central Asian country concerning in particular the circumvention of sanctions. Because when we look at the, you know, the trade figures to that certain country, they are alarmingly high, <laughs> you know, suddenly almost out, out of blue. So something is going on. Alarmingly high between that country and Russia. I mean, it'd be that country and Russia and also, you know, imports from a third countries, you know. And because we have to say here that it's not only the countries in Central Asia that would be sort of a circumventing, but also some other states, maybe even companies even within the EU states. I mean, we are not sort of a clean as lambs, our companies here. So things are going on. And this is something we really have to, uh, to pay, pay attention, pay attention to. Circumvention can be very sophisticated going through, you know, I call it uh, trade washing. It can go through many jurisdictions yes. before yeah. its ultimate destination yeah. and then yeah. still make its way into Russia. So yeah. uh, this takes a lot of coordination. Um, it takes a lot of uh, work by our border officials. You know, again, there's, there's a long chain of implementation here. Yeah, you know, I think that wherever there is profit to be made, business people will try. Mm -hmm. I think some of it will, will, will try to circumvent rules and they will conduct uh, illegal activity. And that's why there is a government backstop. Well, I think that brings us nearly full circle. What does a diplomat do? We've now found out very clearly what diplomats do, um, not only in matters of state, but also in matters of sanctions, trade, economy. And that's been an absolutely fascinating conversation, ladies. That's really a wrap on this episode of Wise Brussels Voices. Thank you so much to our guests, Ailish Campbell and Nina Vashnukanti. We'd also like to thank our technical team at Free Range Productions. Keep listening to our conversations and support us with a subscription on your podcast platform. Leave us a five star on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And of course, add to the conversation with your comments. We're on all media as Wise Brussels, so reach out on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and even TikTok. Learn more about Wise Brussels on our website, wise-brussels.org. I'm Ilana Beitel with the excellent Florence Ferrando, and we'll be back very soon with another great conversation. <laughs>